When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome back to the Grey Malkin Lane podcast, where queer friends and allies gather to review and discuss the original X-Men comics in chronological order. Today we are taking a time travel trip back to early 1970s for a very problematic story in The Avengers by Roy Thomas that features some characters that you know and love, but perhaps have never read about. But first, I am thrilled to uh, welcome Mr. Paul Cornell to the show for the first time. <clears throat> Excuse me. I am an enormous fan of Paul's, and uh, just meeting you is is such a huge honor. Uh, Michael Elliott's back with us as well, as well as my friend uh, from online. You may know him as Ladvarian Lad. Uh, Sean Hattrick is here with us as well. Let me have you each introduce yourselves. I'll have you use your name, your gender pronouns if you like, and where might we know you from? And then today's question, which I'll repeat as needed, are you a warlord or a witch first? Uh, which one do you uh, find yourself more akin to? Uh, let's go with Mr. Paul Cornell first. Hi, Paul. Oh, hello. Uh, you may know me from televised Doctor Who, 25 years of Doctor Who spin-offery, um, DC and Marvel, uh, Captain Britain and MI13, uh, Demon Knights, etc. And um, the Witches of Lichford, uh, or Shadow Police novels, stuff like that. Witch or warlord? Probably witch. Um, I'm a lover, not a fighter. Who, who's going to say fighter? Who's going to say, wrong? that's me? No, 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 not me. Uh, the second part of that question, and these are both based on the issue titles. Are you, uh, are, do you, do you enjoy the blaze of battle or the flames of love? But I think you just answered that. <laughs> could do without the flames. <laughs> I, uh, my husband is not a comic book reader, but I always talk to him about the guests I'm having on. And when I just showed him your CV, he's like, oh my God, like he was just looking at over all the stuff you've done. Uh, your Dr. Who stuff alone is just amazing. It's just a tremendous honor to have you here. Oh, bless you. Thank you very much for having me on. Thank you for coming. Uh, let's go over to Michael next. Hi, Michael. Hello there. Uh, tough act to follow, Paul. Uh, I'm Michael Elliott, gender pronouns he, him. Oh, and uh, me. Sorry, I'm he, him too. I'm actually a professor of sociology at Towson University in Maryland. You wouldn't necessarily know me unless you've stumbled upon my work or see me collecting data at Comic-Cons, which is where I met Chad at FlameCon last year. My research, I specialize in globalization, culture and religion, and fandom studies, which we'll talk a little bit about today, I think. Am I a warlord or a witch? I am definitely a witch, not a warlord. Magic is cool and often requires knowledge and study of old arcane things and old dusty libraries. So that's definitely up my alley. You are a Hufflepuff. I, I, yes. 
You got it. Uh, Blaze of Battle or Flames of Love? Flames of Love just doesn't seem like me. So I'm not a super competitive person, but I love sports and games, you know, leaving it all out on the fields. That's very satisfying to me. And I love a good splash page, you know, a big battle splash page. That's good stuff. Uh, you may also know Michael from our review of X Factor Minus One, which is such a lovely episode. Go back and check that out if you have not. Uh, and then uh, let's go over to Sean next. Hi, Sean. Hey. So you guys might know me as a very lad on Instagram. Uh, I'm also one of the co-hosts on Power of X-Men. So check that out. Uh, he, him as my pronouns. Yeah, I mean, I don't have as prolific a CV as the other two guys to, to go on. Uh, you want to see me dressing up superheroes? Go on to my Instagram. How's that? Amazing cosplay uh, and really fun uh, co-hosting. Uh, Day Springs a good friend of ours. I know you guys are are good buddies as well. It's great to have you on the show for the first time, man. Thanks for yeah, coming. I'm very excited to be here. And uh, are you a warlord like, or? Oh yeah, a witch. I mean, is there any queer person that's not going to choose witch? I feel like that's so ingrained in queer identity to want to be a witch when you're young. Um, so I am definitely 100 witch uh, and flames of love. I mean, I'm a lover, not a fighter. So. Uh, lastly, I'm Chad Anderson. I use him pronouns. I am a former Marvel Comics handbook writer. You guys know me as the host of this show. I'm author and also an author and a documentarian. I uh, I am a warlord these days. I am a queer father who specializes in LGBT therapy and who has two queer children. And there is a war on LGBT people in the world and in the country right now. I just took my kids to a rural town to visit family and the anti-trans rhetoric I was hearing and the anti-drag queen rhetoric that was just kind of passive comments. I was on fire and mad and like speaking up, but then also like, are we safe? And I hate it right now. I hate how hard we're having to fight. So it is the blaze of battle for me in this time. But I hope to be back to being a witch in the flames of love at some point in the future. What a weird question this was. <laughs> Roy Thomas loves a good Shakespearean uh, title for his issues. Uh, so we're going to get to his Avengers run. We're going to talk a lot about Archon the Magnificent, uh, Scarlet Witch and Toad and Quicksilver today, as well as Hawkeye. There's some stuff in these issues that I'm excited to delve into when we get there. But first, I want to spend a little bit of time getting to know Paul. Uh, Paul, I asked this question to most of my guests. I would love to hear a little bit about your origin story. Oh, well, actually, I've, I've written a whole horror novel about this. Um, I am... Um, uh basically became a writer as a giant act of revenge. Uh, terribly abusive school, lots and lots of... What I realised after the fact, uh, many years later, was really quite extraordinary bullying. And um, I uh, started to write um, as kind of real person fan fiction about people at my school and submitted it as essays. And I, I made up stories. I was not going to tell the truth about what was going on out there in the playground. But at the same time, I got to start to grapple with the world, with, with what was being done to me through fiction. And from there, Doctor Who fan fiction, and hence Doctor Who. And my novel Chalk is actually quite autobiographical. I wrote a horror fantasy autobiographical novel. Um, uh, about those days and um yeah that's my origin story my nickname at school was queer i kid you not and um i am i am i'm only about one percent queer queer franson mount how queer is that i don't know but um just that that was the that was the term of abuse that was pinned to me 
for reasons unknown. And um, goodness, that got personal very quickly, didn't it? And rather intense. Qu um, well, welcome to podcasting with a therapist. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's a tagline on my show. <laughs> I ask these stories. I, uh, I think, I, I think I can certainly relate to what you're talking about. I was bullied on the playground even years before I knew I was gay and queer. I was called gay and faggot and all of those names for being different. Uh, I love that you are. I'm not using the right word here, but weaponizing that into telling your truth in a story format and claiming that part of you and turning it into a success story. I think that's phenomenal. My whole career has been an act of revenge, which I believe actually is a an Oscar Wilde quote. So uh, I, I can't claim that's original. But another said, uh, yet another said, queer icon. <laughs> he also said talent borrows genius steals. <laughs> I know you're also really well known for Bernice Summerfield uh, and a lot of the stuff that you've done with Doctor Who. We're not going to spend a lot of time there, but you've done a lot of really great stuff that's re that's remembered by fans all over the place, but the queer community as well for characters that really stand out. Uh, and you have a long career in that space. Well, thank you. Um, Doctor Who is really important to me. It was my ladder. It was my escape route. It was all sorts of things. It's the golden thread that runs through my career and it's led to everything else. And there's uh, lot, lots of Bernice stuff happening in the near future. Can't go into it, but loads. I'm really excited. I'm really excited to hear. Uh, NDAs being what they are, when you can announce that, I would love to know more. <laughs> uh, now, I'm going to ask a big question to start, and then I'll, I promise that the rest of these will not be so serious. I would love to hear about your entrance and exit from Marvel Comics. Oh, entrance. Well, this is a, a, a way into American comics, which it was that I'm, I think any aspiring comic writer listening can, um, you know, uh, copy or emulate. Um, after my Doc Two episodes were broadcast, Mark Miller emailed me out of the blue and said, would you like to write for Marvel Comics? So, you know, that's a simple, easy route to, to the top. And um, you just have that happen to you. Um, it's... Um, I'd written a lot of um, uh, uh, British comics, um, but there'd been, you know, I, I'd been trying to get into American comics for a long time. Exit-wise, well, I, I, I'm not sure I have exit. I've been exited quite. I've been back twice. Um, I um, I was just doing the Wild Cards adaptation. Oh, that's right. You did a you did a book yeah. uh, a couple of years ago. That's right. Well, that was this year. My word, um, it feels like a long year. <laughs> <laughs> it, it has been a long year. Uh, but um, so, you know, I, I, I've i never really quite stopped. Um, I hope I never do. Uh, it, it just depends on the project, really. Um, the end of um, my major time with them, I don't think I, I took my opportunities. I, I think um, I didn't quite realize how short a span is the time when you have to find your voice there and start really moving something along. I think Captain Britain and MI13 was the closest I got to that, and I'm really proud of it. But after an initial burst of selling a lot, um, we we dropped off and uh, didn't make it past, well, just, just past a year. But um, that a sense of having gotten everything you want, because I'd always wanted to work for Marvel, and then uh, it kind of falling away is very present in uh, Con and On, the um, mini I've, I'm, I've got coming out from Ahoy 
it just in the week before this goes out, um, uh, which is uh, 30 years in, in the life of a satirical take on a big comics convention, a Robert Altman movie with a big group of disparate characters and all their stories across 30 years of comics and how the industry has changed and how the industry hasn't damn well changed. And one of the characters there is kind of a, of a me in that they fail. They get everything really quickly and then it falls up, falls away. I, I don't regard myself as having failed in general, but I regard myself as having failed at Marvel. And um, it, it, he's not quite me. He's a bit more of a nasty person, but I just wanted, you never get to hear about, about the, the stories of people who don't quite do it. And I just thought, let's let's see where that goes. And I think it goes to some interesting places. I've gone on and on. Sorry. No, um, no. You, are, you really are a therapist, aren't, aren't you? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I recorded with Erica Schultz earlier today for a, an episode. She goes at the end, she goes, man, that felt like a really good therapy session. <laughs> I'm already feeling better. Goodness. <laughs> Wait till you get his bill at the end, though. <laughs> <laughs> no, no bill for this one. I, uh, <laughs> I am feeling blessed. Now you, uh, you have a long career at Marvel. I'm gonna, I'm gonna quickly summarize. We've spent most of our stuff uh, in the early '60s and now early '70s of the X-Men. We will get to the Captain Britain character in time, but Chris Claremont worked on Captain Britain along with Alan Davis and a lot of other beloved, incredible talents, and they built a whole world for this British superhero who is Captain America, except in Britain. <laughs> Wildly different stories. He's a national hero. He's got a lot of magic to him. And he gets attached to the mutants because his sister, his twin sister, Betsy, is a mutant. Then he uh, gets worked into the X-Men as part of Excalibur, which is one of people's all-time favorite X-Men runs. So Captain, Captain Britain, although he had his own start, is integrally connected to the X-Men for a number of reasons. Now, in 2006, you started with the six-issue limited series, Wisdom, featuring the character Pete Wisdom, who's kind of a smoking, drinking, kind of dirty James Bond guy who shoots fire knives out of his fingers. <laughs> and uh, and uh, then you got to launch after that Captain Britain and MI-13, which is my personal favorite of your work. Uh, that one ran him for a while. That's in 2008 with Leonard Kirk. And you used a lot of characters that we love, uh, Captain Britain and Megan and others who are not directly X-Men associated, but are amazing classics like Blade and Spitfire. Uh, and my personal favorite from this run, Faiza Hussein or Excalibur, who I want to talk about. But let me hear a little bit about your wisdom and uh, MI-13 work, if you're willing to share. I love these stories. Oh, well, um, I, I was really concerned with the fact that Captain Britain, after Chris Claremont, who is one of my great heroes, um, after he created the character, um, largely you know, Captain Britain spent all his time being deconstructed um, because British writers have a very different take on the notion of patriotism. I mean, Captain America certainly is no simple flag-waving um, patriot. There's always uh, an interesting undercutting. There's always a... Um, but when it comes down to it, he does stand for something an ideal of America, if not the real America, Captain Britain had been taken apart almost continually by people who were post-imperially anxious about their own country. And I just wanted to actually create him again, to actually say, no, no we can stand for something. 
uh, let's give him a role, let's give him a function of which we, we Britons can stand for, Britons can in, in agree with. And that was a really interesting process. I was especially annoyed by the fact that he'd become known in fandom as being an alcoholic, having gotten drunk precisely twice during the Excalibur run, and stopped him drinking immediately when his friends called him on it, in the way that alcoholics can't. And um, also, there is the thing that the British have a different viewpoint on alcohol than the Americans do. Uh, the Americans, uh, you know, like no, you're all the fair. same. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but the um, so I, I really, I my first scene with him and Pete is 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 Brian having a drink. Um, because it's okay, and um, it, I, I, I think I did a, a pretty good job in. in I, I like when you write for Marvel or DC. One of the lovely things is seeing what people who come after you and writing those characters keep. And what I really like is that they've kept the idea that his powers are dependent on his confidence. I think that gives a real motive to the character. Um, I, it's really hard to say why he's not a mutant, being the twin brother of a mutant. I mean, that's some weird twinning process going on there. But, um, <laughs> but no. Um, this is the, the, this is clearly a character you are very fond of and even reverential about, is what I'm hearing in your voice. Enormously so. Um, I wanted to get him out of the mask, the full face mask, because I think if he's in the full face mask, you have to do what Alan Davis did a lot, which is kind of make him a little cartoony so he can emote through that mask, because it's a very shutting off uh, emotions mask. Um, he's got to go beyond Jim Apro's Batman's power to move the air around his eyes with a big blink. And, you know, how Apro gives uh, Batman sort of these little uh, lines that come out of his eyes whenever he's glaring. Um, you, you've got to give him big cartoony body language. And if they're going to do a take that looks more realistic, I want to see his face. So, you know, I mean, it's a lovely costume, that costume. But I, I wanted to do things that required seeing his face. Um, you you used a lot of mysticism in your in your era as well. There's lots of fairies. There's lots of magic. Uh, Plakta, my word. Like, there's some great stuff in this <laughs> Uh, where did you get this knowledge? Uh, and then I would love to tie in Megan becoming Gloriana as part of this as well. Yes, Gloriana. Um, Megan, again, kind of knocked back and forth, used weirdly and, and by people who didn't really know what to do with her. And, and again, I like putting stable relationships in there. I wanted her and Brian to be stable. Um, and uh, I... Um, so playing on all of the fairy lore and getting deep, deeply into it, um, I, I've been immersed in, in British mythology all my life and written about it a lot. Um, and so that came really easily. I've actually just done all of this a bit again because I've got to novelise the secret invasion event that's coming out in September. And um, they knew that I could thus uh, put in dollops of Captain Britain and MI13. And I have, and I've given them new dialogue. I've got to write for them again. <laughs> and, um, I mean, so, you're fitting. You gave us a whole scroll band of beetles. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, the scroll beetles were a lot of trouble. Um, Marvel uh, decided they really thus didn't want John the Scroll on a cover, in case anybody noticed. 
and uh, we killed him off fairly quickly because um, he was sort of attracting the possibility of Beatle copyright attention, which uh, <laughs> <laughs> you don't want that. So um, you put an so, yeah, you put an alien with the face of uh, John on your cover. I could see no, I could see that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But, uh, uh, you you also had a tremendous amount of fun writing Pete Wisdom. It seemed like this is a character that is so crass and and awful, and I love him. Oh, I I I wish he wasn't crass and awful. I kind of um, immediately put him in a nice suit because he was he was a John Constantine clone. Let's face it, he was Warren Ellis deciding that he'd like John Constantine in the Marvel Universe too, and um, so nice suit dapper, um, professional about being in charge of an intelligence organization, and um, not one for sexual harassment anymore. And um, a lot of that's fallen away after my run, which I really regret. But, um, you know, I just, I I really like him. Um, um, I really support his relationship with Kitty Pride. I think he was really important for Kitty. You know, readers who don't want an adult woman like Kitty Pryde to have an adult relationship with a fellow adult, I think they should check themselves a bit. You know, um, he, she'd just come off um, as one of her many, many Pete's. Uh, in whatever universe she's in, it's always a Pete. He loves a uh, Peter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but, um, uh, get past that, Paul. Um, but, um, <laughs> uh, um, uh, really a, a sort of innocent uh, in Peter Rasputin and uh, you, know, you want a grown-up relationship with a grown-up uh, grown bloke and I really like the two of them together and I, I was just sad I didn't really get to, to use that. Talk to me about Faiza Hussain. It's a, oh. she's a bold, incredible creation that was really needed and people still treat her very reverentially as a result. Um, I absolutely uh, love the fact that she's probably my biggest contribution to Marvel, the Marvel legacy. Um, she's uh, an AHS doctor who's a Muslim who becomes a superhero. And that's great for her because she's a huge fan of superheroes and knows all about them. And it's really deeply ironic to me that another person who's really like that in many ways should come along shortly afterwards at Marvel. Which um, is which is Kamala Khan? Yeah. yeah, I think I think she and Fasia could have some wonderful discussions, um, and um, but no, I, I had a a, a little uh, group of advisors. Um, I I'd gone to a, a writing conference, I think about Casualty, which was a BBC show I used to write on, and met a bunch of Muslim women doctors, and with my thoughts in my head about what I was going to do with Captain Britain and MI-13, I asked them, you know, all sorts of questions and kept, kept talking to them by email uh, about what would be required for this superhero character. Uh, got And got wonderful stuff back, like what would be um, uh, a Muslim vampire's uh, reaction, like, like, like they're scared of the cross, what would be the same thing in Muslim culture? And they decided the, the call of the, um, from the minarets, the call to prayer, would would be cause vampires to run 
and uh, stuff like that. And, and being able to thus have the confidence to walk forward and um, actually say, this is what she would say and do because these people who know have told me. In many ways now, it was that era when I was allowed to do that. And I don't honestly think I should be allowed to do that anymore. I think this is now the job of um, women writers, of Muslim writers, to, to present these characters. And I think people should go, editors should go out and find them to do that. Um, but at the time, I was allowed to, and I think I did my absolute best. And I love Fagia. I love it when she pops up again, um, giving her the sword Excalibur. Um, as her dad says in the comic, this is acceptance. Um, her being able to draw it, it's, it, 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 it's deeply British. It, it's, it, it's, um, she's worthy. The, yeah, she is worthy of absolute Britishness. And, uh, you know, I, I'm delighted to have done that. Brilliant, brilliant. I, I could do a whole episode just on, on her. I think she's uh, fantastic. I want to cover this next section very quickly, and you can uh, provide some comment. You created uh, in Dark Reign Young Avengers a team of supervillains posing as heroes uh, who have wildly crazy stories. One of them is the the son of uh, the Princess Python, who's one of my all-time favorites. Uh, <laughs> there's a character, Melter, from this series who has been used recently in the Krakoan or modern era of X-Men in the Sabretooth book. Uh, I don't know if you've been following his journey at all, but I would love to hear a little bit of your thoughts on Melter. Well, what I wanted was a, a young character whose power was absolutely terrifying, who really wanted to be a superhero, but it's it's hard to be a hero when what you do is melt stuff. And <laughs> it's, um, it's much easier to be a villain. And I think there, there, are, there must be quite a few characters like this in superhero universes whose destiny is actually shaped by their powers, that um, their powers push their ethics in, in one way or the other. And that was my idea when, when creating him. I haven't, I'm, to my chagrin, I haven't followed the Sabretooth arc. It's nice to hear that he's being featured again. It's really fun. They're doing interesting things with him. The Sabretooth arc is about prison. It's about rehabilitation. And a lot of characters on the modern Krakoa era, now that the mutants have formed their own nation, were cast aside because they broke a law of some kind. And Melter's crime was wanting to be part of the framework or or the governing body of, uh, of Krakoa. Uh, so they used an excuse to throw him into prison. And so now these are society's outcasts looking for a new space. It's, it's, a, pretty, it's a pretty smart series. The story's not done yet, but it's good. I, I am loving the whole Krakoa thing. I, I, I think that Jonathan Hickman's given them an engine there that will last for decades. And um, it's the idea of how do you build a nation, what ethical mistakes you make along the way. It's terrific. Now, I'm, I'm following almost all the books. Turns out not all of them. There's a lot. There's a lot out there. <laughs> I have shared this on my show once before, uh, and I did uh, just record. It's not released yet, but I recorded an episode of the podcast Cerebro all about the character Mimic. Back when I worked for Marvel, uh, which was in this era, I tried to break out from the handbooks and pitch some series. Nobody asked me to, and I didn't end up getting the series. But one of the titles that I pitched was uh, Dark X-Men. And I had this whole story. I had a full script written. And, uh, you know, they they kindly rejected the offer. And then uh, the next year, here is Paul Cornell writing oh. Dark X-Men. And I was oh. like, yay! <laughs> well, I'm glad you were like, yay. 
<laughs> yeah, no, it's great. I uh, I was bold and nobody, again, nobody asked me to do this. It was just a thing I did at the time. <laughs> it's a long time ago. But Dark X-Men has a lot of really fantastic uh, exploration. It's brief. This is during the Dark Reign era. There is a hodgepodge team of X-Men kind of shoved together, including Namor and Cloak and Dagger and Mimic and Weapon Omega. And you told uh, some pretty fun stories, really deeply exploring the psychology of these lesser knowns. I'd love to hear some of your thoughts and memories of Dark X-Men. Well, it, it wasn't a book I was um, I sought out. It was one of those that was given to me, uh, as were, I think, the cast. And um, thus, I just thought, well, what I, that what I could do was to go deeply into them. And um, I, I kept suggesting um, new ways that what, what being a god would be like for Ares and keep, kept having them being turned down. Um, I, I think the... Um, if I ever I did Thor, my my treatise on what it's like to be an actual god in the Marvel universe would 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 be I would really enjoy that. But anyway, um, uh, there were a lot of characters in there. I thought there's lots of room to explore these people, and a lot of them hadn't been really explored. And um, it was one of those things where you 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 take the assignment and you find your emotional content. You find the the thing you relate to, and you go with it. And um, hmm. so, a question, and I, I don't think you have an answer to this, but I'm going to ask it anyway because it's the queer podcast. Uh, people love to look at the relationship between Calvin Rankin or Mimic and Michael Pointer, Weapon Omega, as a homosexual relationship. And there are moments or little hints where you're kind of like, oh, I can see that. But you can also see these two characters who have power sets they have difficulty controlling, who really find camaraderie with each other. Uh, they're, the, they're the two that play off each other in a way. Was there any intention or, or vision on your part as painting these uh, two as friends or as boyfriends? I obviously can't remember. Um, <laughs> I, I'd written queer characters before that. So... If I'd been aware of the fan, that that fan idea, that fan tradition, I might have gone for it. Um, I, I, I'm sorry, I literally don't remember what my intentions were. Sorry. No, it's truly okay. And Christos Gage picked these characters up after. And when I asked him, he's like, yeah, no, I wasn't writing them as gay. And I'm like, they're pretty gay. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I'm going to come back and talk about Wolverine with you, but let me check in with our other two guests for just a moment. Michael, last time we talked, you were talking a little bit about your sociology study. I would love to get an update on where things are. Remind everybody what you're working on. Yeah, absolutely. I will try to make it sound half as interesting as uh, Paul's autobiography here. Well, you have an American uh, accent, so you'll never, it's it's just not going to happen. Easy. <laughs> right. At least we can easily distinguish. Um I'm a sociologist, and I'm engaged in a large-scale social scientific study of Comic-Con culture. Um, and by that, I mean the kinds of fan interests that normally revolve around Comic-Con. So we're talking comic books, sci-fi, anime, gaming, uh, those kinds of things. And it's a topic that's surprisingly overlooked in the social sciences. I think a lot of the academic work on fandom comes out of the humanities. And so that means as a sociologist, I'm trying to gather systematic information from Comic-Con fans, testing different hypotheses about fan behavior. I've got um, a 26-question survey that I distributed Comic-Cons. I do in-depth interviews with a subset. 
And the central question that I'm exploring is why people become devoted fans. So for example, why does Chad Anderson do this wonderful, immersive podcast, which, you know, I'm assuming doesn't make him the kind of money that his day job does. And <laughs> there are a variety of explanations that we can explore through this study uh, that have emerged over the years. Do people become devoted fans because it's trendy? You know, is it a kind of contagion where people just sort of get, get roped into it? Uh, is it escapism, something mindless? Uh, some of the early explanations were one of psychological dysfunction. You know, fan is short for fanatic. So there must be something wrong with these people. Um, but one of the explanations I find most compelling are those that compare it to religion, that fandom functions as a kind of religion. I think this is compelling. It has some problems, uh, both conceptually and in terms of lack of data. So my key argument is that I, I believe fans become devoted because their interests are sacred. And those two terms are a little bit different. The re religious can be sacred, but the sacred is not always religious. For example, family can be sacred. The nation and heritage can be sacred. Um, so I try to define and delineate different dimensions of the sacred and systematically explore them through the survey and the interviews. So that's sort of the setup for the study. It's brilliant. What's the progress? What's happening with it now? So some preliminary results. I'll try to go easy on the statistics here. I first and foremost, for many fans, not all, but for many fans that we've surveyed, their interests are much more than mindless escapism. It is much more than being involved in a trend. It's much more than psychological dysfunction. For the majority of respondents, 75% say their interests play an important or very important role in their lives, and a significant proportion experience them as sacred, although this varies by dimension. So for example, 89% of respondents say their interests occupy a unique and special place in their lives. 63% say their interests give them inspiration and purpose. 64% say their interests have taught them important values and moral direction. 51% say their interests involve something powerful that deserves respect. 60% say their interests have inspired them to believe in something larger and more important than themselves. And on the survey, one of the most interesting things is after a question like this, I have an open-ended one. So for example, if you have learned values and moral lessons, what are they? write that in. And we have over 300 answers to that question. They're really diverse. It's tough to weed through them and tease out the themes. But the most prominent theme there, 28% of people that, that fill in, you know, what values, moral lessons have you learned? 28% said that they learned a profound understanding of inclusivity and diversity. And that just blew me away. But it's the most prominent theme for that particular question. 18% said they learned a sense of right and wrong, literally a moral philosophy they have learned from their fan interests. 15% uh, gained an importance of advocacy and active engagement. That is standing up for your beliefs and those who lack representation. So you put all that together and many fans believe that their fandoms have taught them to embrace others unconditionally, provided them with a moral compass, empowered them to live justly by standing up for the most vulnerable members of society. 
I think these kinds of findings are fascinating. Uh, I have so many things I could say. I'll, I'll, I'll keep this very brief. My original reason for starting comics was to find escapism from childhood trauma, if I'm honest. It gave me a sense of community understanding. I wrote my high school thesis as a senior on the X-Men and did more writing about it in college. Uh, it turned into an obsession at times, but also a place where I love these characters and lose myself in them. If I fast forward to now, it's about community building. It's about placing creative energy. It's about accomplishing something and building relationships. Uh, I think there's so many key components of this. And the interesting component here is the answer changes over time for me. Uh, that's an interesting thing. Sean, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. What, uh, yeah, I was gonna say, about the what I'd that love... you get lost in? Um, well, I was just like listening to that. I mean, I thought it was super, super interesting. It'd be, what I'd love to know is like, do you cross the data with other points like, I mean, I'd have a hypothesis like disenfranchised youth or, or youth from queer culture or from minorities probably over-indexed in this kind of subculture because it is a sense of community and escapism and all those types of things that I guess you look for when you're not the, the norm of society or you feel like you're on the outskirts. And um, I wonder how much that plays into it. So those kind of stories come out in the in-depth interviews. Um, I would say that minorities are underrepresented in my sample, certainly at, at the cons. Um, my sample is, is quite white. Um, and so I've tried to seek out cons like FlameCon, uh, Ekbok, which is the East Coast Black Age of Comics Convention in Philly, to try to hear from more uh, underrepresented fans. But one thing that does come out, and Chad, you mentioned this, is that uh, for some people, um, their interests, they weren't just an escape, but they were a way to deal with um, bumps in the road. So it could have been uh, family divorce, bullying comes up, uh, depression and anxiety, and their interest in the community that they built helped them get through those rough patches in life. That's definitely a theme that comes out in the interviews where you get to hear a little bit more of the life history of these things. Um, Paul, do you have any comments on this? My goodness, where to begin? Um, it's fascinating. Um, as somebody who does both fandoms and religion, I've got to say, I think you're onto something. I, I think the, um, the set of responses and the place of the sacred thing um definitely there's a venn diagram there um i um I, I would say a demand for particular behavior is a little bit more of a gray area i i think the um the gatekeepery if you if you like might in fandoms might be a search for uh the law for uh a series of ethical demands that that one's belief system makes of one um that honestly fandom shouldn't have but um I, I think maybe we're trying to fit the shape of a religion into our lives we're trying to find one and my goodness i've been in so many fandoms that save people's lives yeah um the um early doctor who fandom after the old show before the new when it had ceased to be a, a big public entertainment but it become a very minority sport as a young man um, visiting London, a uh, straight young man, um, I think it was unusual that 
every position of power in the um, uh, subculture I was in, Doctor Who fandom, was occupied by a gay man. Um, I looked back at one of my old address books and how many in the 80s and 90s straight young men had 70 plus gay male friends. Uh, well, friends, acquaintances, enemies even. But that was literally a huge, the, the not just a majority, but a vast majority of my peer group. And that gets forgotten now, how queer Doctor Who fandom was back then. When Russell brought the show back, ironically, it got mass appeal again. And so all the positions of power became much straighter. And um, I think that's a shame in a lot of ways, but, you know, go at the top at least. And, um, and you know, Russell's an amazing hero and a great person. I, I, don't, I think that was an unforeseen consequence. <laughs> But um, yeah, so I'm I'm fascinated with you. I'd like to take your survey. I'm fascinated by by the results. Ah, oh. and when we're when we're done, Michael, I'd love for you to share the link uh, where people can find this. I believe I referenced in the first this the first time you came on. I have a friend named Michael Anderson, not Dazzler Michael Anderson that was just on the show, and not my husband Michael Anderson. <laughs> my friend Harvard professor Michael Anderson did a study about uh, the the parts of your brain that activate when you are doing religious engagement. So he's like doing EKGs while people are reading scripture or praying and seeing the parts that activate. And it would be fascinating to see the correspondence between fandom and what parts of the brain activate in all of that. Uh, I'm excited to see where all of this goes. Because we have words that activate, don't we? The Doctor Who fans, we have um, uh, Never Cruel or Cowardly, um, uh, Sprite the Yellow Roadster. We have uh, scripture. Yeah, yeah. To me, my X-Men. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Avengers Assemble. Yes. Oh, my goodness. Uh, we, we'll get to that in a second. Uh, so, Paul, the last part I want to cover very quickly is your run on Wolverine. But I just want to mention quickly, your your series, Black Widow Deadly Origin, is great. Uh, your work with the character Ivan, uh, so, so wonderful. Uh, but we'll again, this is an X-Men theme, so we'll keep it there. <laughs> but I love it very oh, much. thank you. Thank you. Uh, your Wolverine run, you wrote two volumes of Wolverine, and even though you've worked with incredible artists like Trevor Harrison and Leonard Kirk, uh, you got to write uh, or do a book with Alan Davis. Uh, you told an arc where Wolverine loses his healing factor and slowly declines to a point where he has to use drugs and supplements to fight in battle. Uh, oh, yes. This leads into the Death of Wolverine event, which is a huge thing that went on for years in the comics. Tell me about your work on Wolverine. I was never satisfied with it. I I I, I never reread it. I look back on it and think, oh no, I, I I was trying really hard for something, and I was not used to the way that as a um, a writer on a fairly big book at Marvel, um, the ground kept shifting under you. The demands of events historically, Wolverine. Um, because his title, his solo title launched really late compared to his existence. Everybody else, uh, their solo title is where big stuff happens to them. And their team, the team books have to reflect that. With a lot of members of the X-Men, their solo books are kind of spin-offs. And the big stuff for them will happen in the X-Men titles. 
And so I said from the start, um, I want this to be where big changes happen in Logan's life. And I want, want the other books to reflect that and just continue a fight. I never got it. And we went through so many editors, so many changes of direction. I didn't get to land really my central idea. Uh, you know, the watcher shows up for no reason, as it turns out. And we have a <laughs> narration that makes no sense in 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 post um in postscript um and uh honestly it was a hell of a time um i i don't blame others i really should have had a better better handle on how to surf that, those changes um i i think i should have surrendered and said i will write the wolverine from other titles um the bandaged wounded propped up Wolverine barely appeared in any other books and um I I thought by getting rid of his healing factor we would have stories for decades and actually it meant they killed him really quickly <laughs> and I, I in effect I cancelled my own book <laughs> and, I, I'm I'm fascinated and I've never considered this we're about to review an Avengers book and in the Avengers, you have characters that have their own titles, like Thor and Captain America and Iron Man, in which they are very largely about the lives of these superheroes, and the Avengers will reflect what's happening in their personal titles. But you're right, with Wolverine, it's always kind of his supplementary adventures outside of the X-Men. It's like what he does when he's not with the team. Yeah, uh, that That's a really interesting perspective. I've never considered that about his book. And, and it's the same with any uh, solo X-Men book. And there well, I say more, him more than almost any character, right? He's it's like a joke that he appears in every single superhero group. That I mean, I would imagine editorially, it's really difficult when you've probably got like 10 writers going, like, well, in my book, he's doing this, and oh, isn't he on this continent now? And um, yeah. somebody's there with a timeline trying to fill everything in. <laughs> and we had some very senior writers on some of the um team titles where he he was doing big stuff. And um, oh, it was who was it? It was Greg Pack actually used my version. Bless him, I love Greg Pack. Yeah, good guy. Mm. Uh, it's it's really interesting to consider all of this. My brain's going to be computing all this information for a while. Uh, for time's sake, we're going to jump into our issue review. But Paul, I could ask you seventy-five more questions. Thank you so much for letting me pick your brain. Uh, the, terribly flattering. Thank you. I mean, the, the conversation is lovely, but the Faiza Hussein piece is what's really going to resonate with me. Uh, and the, we 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 put that with the conversation with Michael about representation and fandom and how we find ourselves, and we use that character as a template, and we can really see uh, how important these stories are to us. Uh, Okay, we have covered the Quicksilver Scarlet Witch drama for a while on my show, but it's been a minute. So I'm going to give you a quick recap of where they were in the 1960s. They start out with the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. They are identified as mutants. Wanda has both her mutant hex stuff and her magic stuff. They join the Avengers. And after a while, we have not covered this area of their continuity much, but we're just because they're Avengers characters primarily. After a while, Magneto shows up and convinces them to come back to the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, along with Toad. Uh, we've covered these issues on my show. I've even interviewed Roy Thomas about some of this. They storm the United Nations. Wanda loses her powers. And at the end of that adventure, Toad kicked Magneto out of the ship and said, I'm done with you. And now he's just hanging out with Pietro and Wanda and kind of traveling around. 
We did review uh, Amazing Spider-Man number 71. I think I got the number right. Uh, with uh, Dennis Calero, where we talked about these three in New York. Uh, Wanda's sick because she doesn't have her powers. And Pietro's like, Spider-Man's a bad guy. I will go get him. <laughs> so It's a a really interesting uh, kind of era. So this particular set of two issues that we're going to cover, Toad shows up here. It's also the first appearance of Archon the Magnificent. And it's the issue where Wanda gets her mutant powers back. So there was enough for me to want to cover this and spend at least one episode on the show. Although these guys aren't going to appear on my podcast for again for a little while because we're focused on uh, other things. Uh, so this era uh, is ni- April 1970 and May 1970. We're covering Avengers 75 and 76. Uh, Roy Thomas is writing John Buscema, who just tragically passed away uh, just weeks before we're recording this, is on pencils with the beloved Tom Palmer on inks. Uh, Sam Rosen's on letters. We haven't seen him on the show for a little while. And Stan Lee is on edits. Uh, let me open with just asking the panel here, what was it like for you guys to visit this couple of issues? We're not going to get uh, too far into the themes yet, but there's a lot of misogynist, uh, misogynistic guys running around. <laughs> That was actually what one of my observations. I didn't know how much we were going to talk about it. So I was going to ask people who know more about comics, is this intentional, meant to be humorous, or is this a sign of the times? Sign of the times. I, there's I would there's say, so much misogyny back then. <laughs> I, yeah, well, there is. Um, I, I would say this is a highly evolved form, the Marvel comic in 1970, like uh, bo- the Bollywood musical or the um, 1960s American Western. Um, you you got to be aware of the tropes and coming to it from outside, you're just going to be shocked by what it's like. Um, I, this was my jam. I mean, back in the day, this particular team, plus the really smooth progression to Engelhart and then Jim Shooter, Busima um, and Tom Palmer especially, this is classic Avengers for me. This is Avengers Heartland. And there's something so satisfying about the way you've seen the draws of superhero comic. Um, the shapes of the panels, the fact that everybody is acting incredibly hyperdramatically at every given moment. Um, <laughs> there is never a moment when you're not with when nobody has their hand in a dramatic Shakespearean claw gesture. And... Um, and Tom Palmer's lovely, beautiful, fine detail work. There's a there's a close-up panel here of Natasha's the Black Widow's eyes that, oh my goodness, yeah. to die for. Um I guarantee all of you smiled while reading this, uh, these two issues. Uh Sean, have you read yeah. these before? What were your thoughts? I I always laugh when I go back and read old comics from that era because I think now you they writers write to a more mature audience where they'll write up to younger audiences where back then i mean it's like you said it's so tropey it's so um there's no nuance to the plot it's like let me expose something in the most obvious way in case you're an idiot and you you know <laughs> it's very one-dimensional um and exactly that like your analogy to shakespeare it's like no one talks like that it's super theatrical so it is, like you said, I smiled when I read it because like, this is so ridiculous. I can't believe people used to read this and take it seriously. Um, but I did have a good chuckle as I was reading it. It's so fun. I love this era. I really do. And Roy Thomas loves his Shakespeare. He loves his big dramatic stuff with the exclamation points. Well, the thing is, I was a small boy uh, when I read this, largely in Treasury editions and things like that. And um, that's 
the the audience that the, the nine-year-old is about right for this and for a nine-year-old this is the perfect storytelling medium and the perfect level it's pitched at so i think there's a there's a deliberate this is not this is not undeliberate you know this is to satisfy the majority of the audience who are nine yeah and, and this is um, like when the Brady Bunch is on TV, right? <laughs> this is a long time ago. Absolutely. I mean, this is this is basically a story about smashing action figures together. Yeah, but I think that like my entire notes from the second half of it, which Chad asked me to cover, is just question marks. Like, why is this happening? There's no explanation <laughs> or logic, but sure, we'll go with that. Um, which I guess we'll get into in a second. Uh, Paul, I really appreciate the reverence and the the understanding of like putting this into perspective of who the target audience is. I think we can have that and still just laugh our asses off about how oh ridiculous. Oh my god! Yes, I'm about to. Goodness. <laughs> uh, the uh, the cover on this book is uh, a beautiful study in perspective. It's really well done. Quicksilver is running in the forward with Captain America throwing a shield, Vision, and uh, Black Panther behind. With this is Hawkeye's era when he's using the Pym formula. So Hawkeye is Goliath in a very gay costume with his entire midriff exposed. Uh, but he's reaching forward. The size and proportionality of all this is beautiful. And it's quite dramatic. You, you see on the cover Hawkeye or Goliath yelling, grab Quicksilver. He's the only one who can stop the world from blowing up. Uh, and then you get an image of Scarlet Witch uh, with very black hair uh, underneath. Uh, I'm going to cover the first half of this uh, kind of succinctly. Uh, a lot of this is Avengers stuff, and there's a lot going on. The Avengers, like the X-Men, is a giant soap opera. The Avengers at this time consists of Captain America uh, and Vision and the Black Panther and Goliath, who is Hawkeye. Uh, their, their numbers are way pared down. We recently, and we did cover this on my show because it's amazing. We covered the wedding of the uh, Yellow Jacket and the Wasp, and we see them here. Uh, this is back when he Yellow Jacket did not know he who he was, and the Wasp is like, it's the perfect time to marry you then. Like, now that you no longer know your name, let's do this. Uh, anyway, go back to my episode with uh, Trina Farrell for that. It's a lot of fun. Uh, we do see them leaving in this. And uh, I already brought you up to date on where uh, Wanda and Toad and Pietro are. So let's jump in. On page one, we see a splash page of Jarvis. We love Jarvis. Someone has broken into the mansion and he activates a series of traps. But it's Quicksilver and he's evading all the traps. Now, at any point, and you're going to notice this theme very quickly, Quicksilver could just stop and say, hey, guys, I need a little bit of help here. But he's so fast to run and everyone just wants to punch him so bad. It just turns into even a fight with Jarvis. And uh, <laughs> uh, Jarvis is like, oh, it's you, Pietro. And Quicksilver is like, where the fuck are the Avengers? And Jarvis is like, calm the fuck down, Pietro. They're over on Pier 12. And Pietro's like, well, sorry, I got to go by. And, uh, and uh, <laughs> he just runs off. The Avengers, as at this point, have the emotional maturity of a gang of nine-year-olds as well. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there, there, there is always a fist fight about nothing, and there's an immediate, as you say, he fights even Jarvis. There's, there's literally. This is Jarvis's literal thought bubble over about Pietro, and I think we can all relate. He goes, he's gone, and I can't say I'm terribly sorry. If he's come back after all these months to rejoin the Avengers, perhaps I should tender my walking papers. Mother did so want me to become a CPA. I love Jarvis. God, he's oh, and so the, sexy. And the, and the, and the, and the, the box that uh, Stan puts in the next page, just telling the reader what a CPA is. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you're nine, you don't know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we we move over to Janet Van Dyne, who is dressed, and she is posing for the photographers with bare legs. 
And uh, she's like, just one more, boys. My kneecaps are getting chilly. I really do love the wasp. Uh, Hank Pym is smoking a pipe. He's talking to the reporters. Uh, one says, this is not this is not a thing to say to Hank Pym, who struggles with a mighty inferiority complex. Like, you're giving up a, ser- a su- uh, being a superhero to be a mere biochemist again? And he's like, there's nothing wrong with being a biochemist. Apparently, Washington has commissioned him to go to the Alaskan oil fields to study the effects on wildlife. Uh, I don't know what a biochemist is doing there necessarily, but good for him. We do not know about this era of his history. Also, Bill Foster shows up. This is the guy that is the future Black Goliath, uh, the character that dies in the Civil War lately. Uh, so I'll keep going, but do we have we have uh, any comments from the panel on the issue thus far? Well, I, I do like the fact that this is the era when um, if Stan thought that the dialogue, that the art did not absolutely convey the meaning of what was intended somebody would talk about what they were doing at the same time the character and falling down the stairs yelling i'm falling down the stairs yeah and, and one of roy <laughs> thomas's um favorite lines is have you forgotten because anybody sensible would would in a highly autistic way remember um the power sets and the attitudes of everybody involved at every given moment and deal with them absolutely perfectly but so people are always saying, have you forgotten my power to? Or there's about five have you forgotten in these two issues. <laughs> uh, Michael or Sean, any thoughts so far? Mark, I've got, um, I think you called it out where I just wrote down, because I, I wrote notes in the first half of like, the silly trope of why doesn't he just say why he's coming? It's like, I don't have time to tell you why I'm here. I must go and do something else. And you're like, it's like that horrible, like, Trump that you see on all those CW superhero shows where you're like, if you just take two seconds to explain, you'd avoid the entire series arc of misunderstandings, you know? Um, but that wouldn't be fun, would it? And you wouldn't have the rest of the issue. So uh, again, it's action figures mashing up uh, against each yeah. other. So Quicksilver gets here, uh, uh, Yellow Jacket and Wasp are off, and they immediately start fighting him. Even Captain America, they're they're all just trying to punch Quicksilver so hard. And Black Panther's the only character that's like, maybe we should listen, uh, which is fair. Uh, Goliath tries to get a bunch of one-liners in. This is again Hawkeye. He says, you're going to wish you'd stayed in Lower Slobovia, which is just a bad like American pun on a, an Eastern Europe country name. Uh, he also calls uh, Pietro Speedy Gonzalez and Swifty. Uh, Quicksilver finally calms down and forgive me Avengers, but it was my concern for my sister which made me so reckless, so quick-tempered. And Hawkeye starts to squeeze him and he's like, dude, stop squeezing me. This is crazy. Uh, Pietro then recounts their recent history. And here's where I'll slow down because here's the characters we love. Uh, we flash back to Wanda losing her power. They have apparently been combing the libraries of Europe in a vain effort to restore it. And we're getting kind of the vibe that Scarlet Witch is tapping into her magic. Something is pulling her toward a particular book that she needs to find. We'll get into that in a second. Uh, we get uh, we get them looking through tomes of books, just stacks of books. And Wanda says, it's no use, we failed again. And Toad says, no fair one, not failed. We shall succeed with time. And Pietro says, the Toad is a blithering fool, Wanda. They're always so mean to him. Your yeah. vanquished power was yours because you were born a mutant. What musty book can bring back a birthright? And Wanda says, I'm not certain myself, my brother. And yet somehow I feel that we are so very close. And Toad says, if you truly feel so, then perhaps the foolish toad can help after all. There is an old cloister near here, one I had forgotten till now. But if you wish me to lead you there, and they follow him to a place where there is a weird cave full of books with a weird old man with a beard in it. 
And he's like, sure, come in. It's the withered pages where the secrets of the ages are. And they still can't find it. And Toad invites Wanda to run away with him. And and Pietro gets mad and punches a stone, which opens a trap door to, I don't know, they get a a book that she needs. That's that's really all that matters. (laughs) John John Buscema did not have references, but cloister. It's so weird. What what the fuck is this wizard just doing here? Who is this man? Uh, so uh, Wanda reads a spell from the book. It says, let the time winds whip from world to world. Let them batter down all cosmic walls. Let the bold, brave banner be unfurled. And at last, great Archon walk these halls. And a portal opens, and here comes Archon the fucking Magnificent. So we're going to talk about Archon, but let me hear your thoughts on these interactions with Wanda, Pietro, and Toad. Because, oh my. <laughs> what to take up? I mean, I I mean, just the fact that he's like, oh, by the way, after hours of reading these books, I just happen to remember I know a wizard. And the wizard, first of all, if you are a wizard, you're just going to let strangers walk in and be like, yeah, yeah, just read my magic books. I'm not even going to help you research. Like, that's fine. The whole thing is just so, um, you just have to go with it and not ask any questions or have any logic or perspective of reality to just be like, sure, we'll just go with this. And it will continue on in the rest of the issue. I I love that the wizard is all, ah, but if you stumble across anything (laughs) evil and powerful, be sure to call me, okay? Yeah. Yeah, And and they don't. (laughs) I would love to hear your thoughts on the Toad. This is a character I've explored a lot on my show. He is, I try to be lovable. They they portray him as the kind of pathetic misfit, obviously. But then I go to like a place of understanding. My kids have a couple of friends that are like so hyper, I can barely stand them. And Pietro's annoyed with anyone all the time anyway. So I, I'm kind of picturing just Toad being, or Toad being so much. <laughs> like Everybody's like, mm, all the time. I don't know. What are your thoughts on his portrayal here? He's sad. He's like... <laughs> they just bully him. Like, there's so many um, examples in this issue of the heroes just being really mean. Like, the fact that Clint just attacks Quicksilver with no actual provocation. And you're like, aren't you an Avenger? Like, did you really start with violence against somebody who was a teammate? Um, and I think Toad, it's the same kind of thing. Like, you just kind of feel bad for him, don't you? Paul, are you a Toad fan? Are there Toad fans? I mean, <laughs> there might be now. Um, I um, he's clearly meant to be sort of servile and uh, a lick spittle, a very one of these Shakespearean types that uh, Stan so loves. And, um, he's also got a thing for wonder, which is a little creepy. He's he's got a thing for anyone who shows him kindness. It's Magneto first, and then it's Wanda. By the way, he's currently on that team with Melter uh, and Sabretooth that I talked about earlier. So he's another one of the society's castoffs. Uh, okay, let's talk about Archon the Magnificent. Uh, this is a character that has only shown up about like 35 times in Marvel history, like 35 issues total. He is in the X-Men cartoon at a particular point, which is why people remember him fondly uh, for X-Men fans. But he's a weirdo. Uh, he has a weird helmet with like bird wings on the top. I do not know how to describe this. Uh, Fabio hair. Gray sash on his shoulder, metal bracelets, metal belt, flared boots, furry briefs, 
and he is ripped and he has this big old shield with a lightning bolt on it. He is Conan the Barbarian and He-Man mixed together with a couple extra shots of testosterone. And he's giving us orgasm face the entire issue. (laughs) I think he is a take on something really specific. And I think um, he seems very weird because the specific thing he's a take on has been kind of disconnected from popular culture. I think he's a take on John Norman's gore books. Oh, G-O-R-R, gore. G-O-R, I think. Um, They are deeply misogynist fantasies about abducting women from Earth to an alien dimension where they are enslaved. And they start off as being very much in the mainstream Conan Wake tradition. So Roy Thomas would have read these, I would have thought, because they start off as reasonably harmless. And then they go full. Wow. But um, they... um, uh, I think he it's a Roy Thomas loved grabbing bits of pop culture. He grabs Asimov's Nightfall here as well for a bit for the effects on the planet. And I I think Archon is a, a Gorean. I have never heard of Gore before. I love this insight. And now I'm totally going to research this. I do know Roy well enough. I've, been, I've interviewed him twice. He loved to take things he was reading and seeing and working them into characters. So that makes sense to me. Roy is also, and I would say this to his face, and I really love him, but he's also very misogynistic in a lot of ways. <laughs> and it's okay to say that out loud. <laughs> uh, he's very horny in a lot of his writing. <laughs> You, you look at Archon, and when he arrives, this guy is a lot, you guys. Here's what he here's where he says when he first appears. When I speak, let all else keep silence. For I am he who you yourself have summoned, woman. Form my world behind, beyond all, or excuse me, from my world beyond all worlds. I am power incarnate, the lord of warlords, first among the warriors of the universe. I am Archon the Magnificent. And he's very mask-seeking mask. <laughs> this, this whole thing. Uh, Archon is a lot, and I love him. And Wanda says, then you are Archon the fool if you think a mere entrance and a few high-flown words will cow us into silence. And he says, ha! Ever have I desired a mate with spirit, and at last I have found her. (laughs) And apparently he's been watching her, like, from across the dimensional walls, and he desires her, so he, like, lured her to this book that would open the portal. And Toad's like, no, you can't have her, she's mine, and he knocks Toad down. And we'll we'll let Sean continue from here in a moment, but Archon's everything. (laughs) Oh, he's also got a quiver full of lightning bolts that can do different things, so that's fun. He's, like, very Zeusy in that way. Uh, thoughts on Archon by anyone before we continue? What an entrance. Hey, product of... oh, go ahead, sorry. Michael. Uh, that was it. What an entrance. <laughs> I think reading it, like this is, you know, reading it in 2023, I, I like, in my time, like, he calls her woman. Like, it's just such a thing that you'd never see nowadays. Or like, you know, in 2023, just Foxy, where you're like, okay, we'll start with that. Um, and he was just like, I'm going to marry you with no context as to, you know, and, and it actually doesn't come up or play any relevance in the story afterwards. He's like, I came from mate, but actually there's another reason, which is far more important, actually, that he needs to travel the dimension than to find uh, a wife. But anyways, you're um, my woman. Also, my planet's dying. Yeah, also my planet's dying, <laughs> but I do need a mate. Um, so the battle starts and Toad gallantly uh tries to defend one of honor uh and very quickly gets vaporized by one of the lightning bolts but you find out that the lightning bolt doesn't vaporize him it sends him off to the world that archon is from Poly- uh, you see him there. polymachus is the name yes 
<laughs> he's, he's 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 somewhere else. He's on the other on a different continent because we never yeah. see him. And then um, and of course Pietro uh, tries to to butt in. Archon knocks him down. Um, and then what I love, I think my favorite part of the entire comic is uh, Wanda starts questioning him, and he goes, "I know you're stalling, but I'm going to expose the plot anyways because I don't have a clever way to do this." So this is just a very easy way to explain everything of my backstory. Uh, and then you find out that Archon is from a very sad war world where war is glorified uh, and he is the best warlord who's beaten everybody and ascended to you know, king or emperor of this world. Um, and then he meets with an old man whose Logan's run deeper has passed, who's no longer young and virile enough to be a fighter. Uh, but the old man says, um, you know, you're an idiot. Stuff is happening to our planet. Take a look through our Scopitron, uh, which is a gigantic, I guess, um, magnifying glass for worlds. I'm not really sure, or like through dimensions. They don't really say how they're seeing Earth, but um, from their planet, they can see Earth. Uh, and you find out that the rings around War World that are giving them the light, so their version of the sun, are fading. Uh, and it's the one problem that Archon can't punch his way out of. So uh, as emperor of this planet who is slowly getting plunged into darkness, he has no idea what to do. Um, and the planet starts to, well, the day comes where the planet gets dark. People start starving. Uh, they make reference to diseases and, and blights that, uh, I guess, manifest through the darkness. Um, but then the old man says, actually, there's hope that every time a bomb or an atomic bomb goes off on Earth, it creates a spark of light. Um, so the irony of war on Earth helps war worlds survive. Uh, but unfortunately, we humans don't glorify war and uh, we're looking for peace. And that's a problem. So Archon needs to find a way to come through a portal and detonate, I guess, a gigantic atomic bomb is his ultimate goal. Um, so then the exposition finishes. Uh, back to the present where he throws another one of his lightning bolts and teleports Wanda away. Uh, and then Pietro thinks he's really clever and is going to get hit by a lightning bolt, but Archon outsmarts him and lightning bolts himself. Uh, in, at which in, point we... Sorry. Oh, no, go ahead. You've gone past the, the bit of exposition I, think, I thought was truly incredible, which is kind of designed to give uh, future reference book writers utter nightmares. Um, the reason that Wanda's magic can help um, bridge the um, bring Archon, a living being, from his dimension to ours is because oh, she's a mutant. You, yeah. And that's a, something to do with atom bombs, which kind of show up across the dimensions. And thus it sort of works ish. Um, <laughs> wow. <laughs> Anybody doing the science, science of the 70s Marvel Universe is going to have their work cut out with that. <laughs> yeah, that is a good point. It was, again, another very niche. It has to be a mutant that reads the spell and you happen to be in the right place at the right time. Um, so, you know, a lot of happy coincidences for this issue. Um, and then we cut back to, uh, well, Pietro telling this story to the, the Avengers. Clint doesn't necessarily believe him calls it a cock and bull story. Um, but then conveniently, as they are debating whether or not Pitch is telling the truth, 
there is a news report that flashes up saying that uh, a man uh, is attacking a gathering of scientists. So you assume, well, we do see that as Archon enacting his plan to- This just did, man in hairy problem. briefs. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and leaves um, us on a cliffhanger. The uh, the polymachus, this land, uh, it, the 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 thing here is the planet is surrounded by rings that power the planet, and the rings will run out of energy. So this is a story that gets told about this land more than once in continuity, where heroes have to go and find a way to charge these things up. Our contrast did like invade our world or cause a war to charge them up. There is also, uh, it's very Asgard. There's a lot of just like drinking and like everybody's like fighting around and having fun kind of energy, but uh, they ride on dinosaurs, which is another really unique thing about this specific place. So uh, whenever you see Archon, you're going to see Polybacchus with it. Uh, any other thoughts on uh, Avengers 75 before we jump to the next issue? I think the cover is pretty tangential to the issue. Not only does Quicksilver, what, what is it, know the secret of the world blowing up? Um, there's also that that box that goes, how do you catch the world's fastest mower? It turns out you just grab him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is a very Scarlet Witch story. In her current series by Steve Orlando, she's very like called to where she's needed. The door opens when it's something she needs. I can see her powers kind of working in that way here. Uh, Pietro also, and I know this is uncomfortable, in the Ultimate Universe, these two are twins, but also lovers. There's always the vibe or the joke that Pietro wants Wanda so no one else can have her. So part of the reason he's running to the Avengers for help is the same as Archon. He's like, the world's going to be destroyed, but mostly we have to rescue Wanda before that man marries her. <laughs> I don't think anybody writing for Marvel Comics in the 70s had a sister. Because they, <laughs> they, these two from moment one, they don't give off a brother-sister vibe. No. <laughs> Uh, as we jump to issue 76, uh, the caption on this one says, the day the Earth exploded. Uh, Your world must die so mine can live. And we have Archon carrying the Scarlet Witch up one of the tallest buildings in New York City. Uh, it's very King Kong as the Avengers fight. And uh, notable for the time because they were off the team, but uh, Iron Man and Thor are back with the team for this arc. The actual uh, title of this issue is The Blaze of Battle, The Flames of Love. Uh, and Paul, will you take us through the beginning of this book? We start with um, the Avengers researching and how to um, cross the dimensional barrier, uh, leading to an awful lot of Buscema lovely, dramatic uh, poses as the Black Panther heroically tries to, to go across the barrier and it's hurting him. Um, he's a, he's in the Avengers, uh, he's in the Avengers D machine, which apparently scans dimensions. I don't know. Yeah, and we have a, a little side bit where um, uh, Clint is relaxing with a ginormous crossbow that he's built, and um, the Black Widow pops in to have a bit of soap opera with Clint, and um, uh, tells him that um, we must never see each other again, uh, very dramatically, and uh, says, I never loved you, never. And we can tell by the way that she is crying as she says it and looking away from him that that's not true, that that is a dramatic irony. And um, a, a, the dinosaur riding in a lovely, lovely way in a Kirby-esque uh, spacescape in the planet Polyphemus, I don't know. Polymachus. Um, Polymachus. It's not actually named of these two. But... Um, uh, and wonder apparently 
between panels has started to maybe get a little into this, which is weird. Um, because she's, how can I love the man who destroys all I own, hold dear, and keep who keeps me captive here against my will? Well, yes, how indeed, Wanda? That is the question that we are asking. Um, and, and his reply is, you shall learn beauty as the years turn to ashes and you have no one else to turn to. Right. Wow, he's sending silent part out loud there, Arcana. I mean, literally, I will be the last man in the world. And then she says, that I shall never learn, though I live for centuries as your people do, I shall always loathe you. <laughs> He's like, that's fine, you don't have to like me, I got within, you. Within 20 pages, um, <laughs> this gets a little, um, I mean, what, what's really interesting, actually, is that this is a few months before the start of Conan. And um, we're seeing Busima art that's very Conan-y. And also um, Sam Rosen doing poetic lettering on the Alfred Lord Tennyson poem. That's again, very like he would use in Conan. And at the time was startling to see a, a different font. My goodness, different fonts. They're really pushing the boat out. <laughs> um, anyway, um, Archon and his advisor go and uh, see the toad. Oh, there he is. I'd forgotten he's actually here. They've locked him up. Nobody rescues him by the end, the end of the issue. <laughs> and, um, Have you come to free me? I'll, I'll serve <laughs> you, I promise. <laughs> but the, um, uh, the, the scientists, who are a brave lot, the bravery of the scientists is underlined and uh, Archon grabs one and says, for the, that insolence, you shall be the first to face the ultimate persuader, which turns out to be a completely painless machine that just takes the knowledge out of his brain without any 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 awfulness at all, really. So it doesn't really persuade him of anything. <laughs> but, uh, and then you get a lovely, they find the secret of the atom from his brain, and it, it just takes a little bit of work uh, sometime later. And um, sometime later, they've got it. And uh, the uh, wonderful vizier has, within this glowing sphere, a sort of uh, atom design spinning in there and giving out a lovely John Buscema energy. And, um, and what matters is that Archon's world shall live and my beauteous bride need never know the cost. To which the vizier comes out with simply a question mark in a, an excited speech bill and go, mm -hmm. I think that's almost a Scooby-Doo sound, like the Vizier goes, what? <laughs> but, um, so, and, and he's lying to wonder. He, then you've learned a way to save your world without destroying mine. Um, and uh, no, uh, so I could go home and everything would be fine. Great. No, you're a chosen bride of Archon. You're going to stay here for all of time. But see, here's a flower in the wall. The fabled flower of life, it has been picked by the betrothed of the Imperium and worn by her on the day of her wedding. And the maid wanderer, of course, immediately picks it as your word, rather than going, right, that's definitely something I'm not going to do. I'm yeah. not going to pick that flower because, <laughs> but, no. And um, it reminds her of a poem by Alfred Lord Tennyson, which she reads out with lovely um, Sam Rose and poetic lettering. And Archon doesn't understand it. How can a flower hold the secret of, of a cosmos? And she actually goes, oh, Archon, Archon, you are so brave, even noble in your own way. <laughs> yeah, very much in his own way. Um, perhaps I could love you, could even be happy as queen of your world. 
uh, if only you weren't so cold as distant to the stars. And he says, oh, you could perhaps teach me. And she goes, perhaps, wow. I mean, there, there must be something in the water. That's all I can say. Or maybe he's dosed her with something. Maybe he's roofied her in an alien way. <laughs> <laughs> just, just as well that uh, a warrior runs in and goes, invaders appear. Um, and so wants let me let me have you pause there for just a second. I want to read one line of dialogue from earlier in the issue. After the Avengers uh, can't break through the, the dimensional barrier, Quicksilver's like, you failed. And Black Panther and Captain America are like, dude, it'll, it's fine. We'll keep looking. It's, take your time. And Quicksilver rants in the most angry, pissed face. He has time. Yes, Avengers, you have plenty of time, don't you? What does it matter if my sister Wanda, meanwhile, becomes the bride of the barbarian Archon? As long as the world is saved and there are medals left to reward the Avengers. He's like, you guys, they're going to fuck my sister. And you just want fame. Come on. It's really upsetting for him. <laughs> Uh, Michael, will you take us through the last half of the book? Yeah, absolutely. I I love this look on uh, on Archon at the top of, of page 11. I just thought, oh, poor Archon doesn't understand poetry. He's just a big, dumb warlord. But I thought it was bonkers that, that Wanda is being poetic here and almost kissing him. Um, she really is, is nothing more than a, a damsel in distress in this entire, you know, issue here. Um but yes, just that as as Paul said, the Avengers break through the dimensional wall. It turns out with the help of Thor's hammer, that helps to helps them bridge the dimensional barrier there. Wanda pleads with Archon to reason with them rather than fight. And I love this, you know, blatantly sexist response from Archon, who said, Archon does not hide behind the skirts of a woman. And that's exactly how he would sound, by the way. Gross. Uh, <laughs> Then pages 12 to 15, we get the big battle scene. The Avengers face a sea of barbarians, these big battle cannons, and they're all quickly dispatched by the Avengers. To Archon's utter disbelief, we get some more just hilarious prose here. Uh, after his barbarians are defeated, Archon says, It is beyond all belief. The cream, the very flower of my guardsmen, they are scattered like chaff before the whirlwind power of the Avengers. My goodness, uh, let me let me pause and whoo. I, I must say, I did get a fanboy thrill out of that lovely realized Thor going, ooh, actual warriors, I could fight these. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> Good stuff. So page 16, Archon is beaten. He's on the run, but he's got one last play here. Uh, he's going to unleash the Atom Sphere, which had been created. He's going to unleash it on Earth before the Avengers catch him. And then we see Wanda, for some reason, is stunned that he lied to her about sparing Earth, uh, to which Goliath, Clint Barton, who just sort of enters the scene, replies, don't let it get you down, witchy. After all, you're only a female. <laughs> see, guys, it's not just Jean Grey that gets treated this way. <laughs> It's great. Maybe Wanda is thinking, well, it's not so different back on my world, you know. Half <laughs> a dozen of one. Pages uh, 17 to 19, Thor's hammer is used once again to transport four of the Avengers back to Earth, but they all fail to stop Archon, who is climbing atop the Empire State Building to detonate the Atom Sphere. 
Page 20, as the last Avenger Goliath is sort of clinging to the Empire State Building, clinging for dear life. At that moment, it is Archon's sage who appears to him in the sky and says the battle's over. Why? Because Iron Man quickly built a doohickey engine powered by Thor's hammer, which really should be the MVP of the story, by the way. The hammer does a lot. Um, and this reignites the energy ring around Archon's planet and restores their light. We have to point out quickly, Quicksilver runs to the top of the building to fight Archon, who knocks him off, and then he's like, oh no, I'm falling, and giant Hawkeye just grabs him out of the air. It's it's somehow so funny. It makes me laugh. I, I really like uh, giant Hawkeye reaching up um, to grab Archon, and uh, Archon's line is, uh, cannot match your strength, giant, but even in my world, something is known of leverage. <laughs> oh no, the power of leverage. He's got me. He's got me by the enormous finger. <laughs> uh, how do things wrap up, Michael? Oh, gosh. The funny part of this is that uh, Archon has this miraculous change of heart. He will no longer fight the Avengers. He will no longer use the Atomosphere. He will no longer abduct Wanda. Evidently, he's no longer a barbarian. So this, this closing... Uh, Quote here, I am glad, he says, for someone told me that all life is sacred, even the life of the frailest flower. So as Archon leaves, Wanda reveals that she had kept the flower of life that inspired the poem. There it is, the end. Uh, she also got her mutant powers back. It's just a line of dialogue, but something about passing through this dimension has restored her powers. Maybe an atom bomb went off. <laughs> <laughs> I... I also note that, and this is rather nice actually, that um, when the vision appears to join in the battle, uh, she says, flee whoever you are, because she's never met him. Uh, that's going to be such an important thing in her life. That's very true. I didn't I didn't have this pegged as their first meeting. That's a, that's a wonderful. I want to give the insight. I don't know if anyone is reading Scarlet Witch by Steve Orlando nowadays. It's great. It's, it's so wonderful. Good. And Steve's a good friend of mine. Scarlet Witch has a power set that kind of allows her to know what is needed when you go with the magic of it. So I'm going to make her the protagonist of this story for a moment. She is not a willful actor, but she seeks out this book, allows herself to be taken, plays very placating with Archon until she picks the flower, which ends up being the thing that convinces him to stop the war. But through this series of actions, she made the humans aware of all of these people in danger in another dimension and thus saved their planet as a result, right? So you, I, I almost want to play this as, this is not the intention of the storytellers at the time, but I, want, I almost want to play this as Wanda is the star player here, like just navigating everything and doing what was needed to save the day, uh, which is, a, I think, a brilliant thought. <laughs> uh, do we have any final comments on these couple of issues or uh, on how an amazing and terrible Archon the Magnificent is? <laughs> I, I, I do like the fact that Thor and Iron Man can just rejoin the Avengers whenever it is tremendously convenient to the plot for them to do so. <laughs> the theme of these issues is very largely, instead of fighting, just ask for help. Yeah. <laughs> like it's very, that's really what the presence is, the moral of the story. I mean, I loved it, uh, an entire lifetime of indoctrination of glorifying war is instantly erased by the single act of kindness in a flower. But, you know, it's a good message. It's, a it's nice not. Message to take away. 
Archon is back again and again. And this the uh, this graybeard vizier guy that's with him often returns as well. Uh he's not he's not a good dude. Uh so you'll see these characters again. Uh maybe not on this show right away, but when I was reading this, I'm like, uh, I, I I did a post on Twitter. I'm like, man, I wish Sarah Century was reading this with me. And she's like, oh, I have Archon thoughts. So don't be surprised if I end up putting something on the calendar for Sarah and I to talk about Archon, because boy, would that be fun. Uh, Michael, any final thoughts? I'm glad we talked about the the art, um, the artwork by John Buscema. And who was it that that mentioned that's kind of John Kirby-esque in, in places, Jack Kirby-esque? Um, maybe that was you, Paul. I definitely sort of saw that in his work that the way they pose, the way they stand, uh, oh, reminds me of Kirby's. The, the yeah. space panoramas, Busima is following what he sees as a Marvel style, I think, in that regard. Yeah. Um, we will bring Quicksilver and Scarlet Witch and Toad all back in to in the future on this show. Toad spends some time here. And if you remember, he was also off on the Strangers Planet for a while in the early continuity. So there's going to be a Steve Englehart issue of uh, of things where Toad takes the technology and the things that he got from the Stranger's planet and from Archon's planet, and he turns it into a suit of Toad battle armor and tries to attack the Scarlet Witch. So we will uh, we will come back to that story, but this is relevant to his chronology. Uh, I had an amazing time, you guys. Thank you for this uh, this wonderful gift of your time and talents today. The single moment that will keep playing in my head for the rest of the evening is Paul Cornell saying, are there Toad fans? <laughs> I, 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 I'm, I'm going to say, nobody in the Avengers thinks, oh, and the Toad. We should probably take the Toad back now. <laughs> uh, as we are wrapping up, where can people find each of you online? And recognizing we're going to put this out on July 17th, is there anything you would like to plug? Uh, let's go in the same order. We'll go uh, Paul, Michael, and uh, then Sean. Um, I can be found on paulcornell.com, um, Insta, Blue Sky, LinkedIn, stuff like that. Um, and uh, just before um, July the 17th, the day before I fly up to um, San Diego Comic-Con, um, in the week before my the first issue of Con and On, my 30-year uh, satire of big comic conventions, with very recognizable characters. I think I cover all of the first wave of uh, British comics creators in somebody who's dapper, somebody who's a bit of a wild man, and somebody who's a cosmic explorer. Those are my three British uh, com comicers. But um, yeah, it's con and on from Ahoy. Hugely proud of it that week. Thank you. Uh, wonderful. Paul, I'm a huge fan, and getting to know you today has just been a delight. Thank you oh, so you much. Oh, you too. Lovely. Thank you. Uh, Michael. I'm not on the socials, but uh, you can certainly Google me, Michael Elliott, Towson University. I do have a website which has a link to the survey. It describes my research. You can download articles that I've written, and I've written things other than the fandom stuff. I can read it out loud here, I suppose. Chad, if you want me to. Yeah, please let people know where they can find you. Sure. The website is HTTPS colon forward slash forward slash WP. Dot Towson, that's T-O-W-S-O-N dot E-D-U forward slash M Elliot, M-E-L-L-I-O-T-T. Uh, and please send me that link as well. I will post it with the episode so people can find your survey, which I've taken. It's well done, and I can't wait to see what happens next with it. Michael and I also have plans for a Patreon episode in the early fall. Uh, we will announce that in the late summer. Uh, and then over to Sean. Awesome. All right. Well, you can find me on the socials, on Instagram, at Ladvarian Lad for the cosplay stuff. Uh, with coming out in July, you won't see me anywhere. I mean, some Power of X-Men podcast that we'll be releasing in a little bit. 
we've got the episode two of our Dungeons and Dragons X-Men crossover uh, that I've been running for a few of the guys over there. So stay tuned for that. And then uh, you'll find me at New York Comic Con in October. I'll and then uh, over for that one. And then lastly, I'm Chad Anderson. I keep my own social media private because I've got kiddos, but you can find me, Gray Malkin, PP Like Podcast on Twitter, Gray Malkin underscore lane on Instagram. Say hi anytime. I'm always happy to hear from you. Right around the time that we put out this episode, uh, the very next episode coming out on the Patreon channel is going to be a feature on the Summers family. Uh, and it's, I just recorded this last night and it's so fun uh, with my friend Philip CV. Philip is also joining me for the next episode that will be released right after this on the main channel, which is going to be exploring What If Minus One, which is an early Bishop story. Uh, so it'll be Bishop's first time on the show. We will also have the incredible uh, talents of uh, Zach Thompson and Edith Balam on that episode. So everybody uh, tune in. We've got great stuff coming up this summer. Uh, thank you everyone for listening. Thank you, Sean. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, especially Paul. And uh, we'll see you back here next time on Grey Malkin Lane. Thank you for listening to Grey Malkin Lane. We hope you are enjoying this podcast. Grey Malkin Lane is produced and recorded in Salt Lake City, Utah, with music and editing done by my husband, Michael Bell, and promo art done by the incredible Seth Martell. Look for us on Patreon, where we are releasing weekly episodes about obscure characters and facts. Uh, it's a great way to participate with the podcast for only just a couple of dollars a month, and it helps support what we are doing here. Also, the best way you could help Grand Malkin Lane is by sharing and liking and subscribing, but also please leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'll see you back here next time on Grand Malkin Lane.